0: Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, everyone. Those of you who listened to our two-part exploration of Shane have already heard the voice of George Stevens Jr., the son of the director, George Stevens. But there was a lot more to our conversation than just a discussion of that classic Western. You see, in many ways, George Stevens Jr. is just as important and influential a figure as his father, After working with his father on films like Shane, A Place in the Sun, Giant and The Diary of Anne Frank, George Stevens Jr. became a director in his own right, directing for television on shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Peter Gunn and Father of the Bride. However, in 1961, the trajectory of his life changed when he was recruited by famed journalist Edward R. Murrow, who was, at the time, the director of the United States Information Agency. There, Stephen became the director of the UNIA's Motion Picture Service, where he supervised over 1,500 films, including the Academy Award-winning documentary, Nine from Little Rock. In the late 60s, Stevens lobbied Congress to create an organization to promote and preserve the nation's cinematic heritage. The campaign succeeded, and in 1967, President Lyndon Johnson signed the legislation that created the American Film Institute, with George Stevens Jr. as its founding director. Its mission, to preserve and study the great films of the past while educating the great filmmakers of the future. Without the AFI, hundreds, if not thousands, of our greatest American films would simply have been lost. And some of our greatest filmmakers, people like Terrence Malick, Paul Schrader, and Darren Aronofsky, might never have gotten their start. George Stevens Jr. continued his work linking Washington, D.C. to the entertainment industry with his creation of what I believe is among the most consistently beautiful and moving tributes to the arts. The Kennedy Center Honors, which he created and then produced from 1978 to 2014. That's 37 consecutive shows of pure artistic joy. And if that wasn't enough, George Stevens Jr. continued his work as a producer, director, and even a playwright. He has, without question, lived an important and influential life, and it was a true honor to speak with him. So, without further ado, I give you our complete interview. With George Stevens Jr. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are absolutely honored to have an incredible, incredible guest. He has worked on some of the great films of the Golden Age of Hollywood, he's one of the founders of the American Film Institute, the creator of the Kennedy Center Honors, winner of 14 Emmys, eight WGA Awards. Two Peabody's and and an honorary Oscar. This is a true pillar of the entertainment industry. George Stevens Jr., welcome to the Cinephiles. Well, thank you very much, uh, Steve. Really happy to be here. Absolutely thrilled to have you. And what I'm so excited about is that you're really a window into just the golden age of Hollywood and so much of what's happened since then. And the first thing I'm really curious about is what was it like growing up as a kid in that era in, in Hollywood? Well, from my standpoint, it was terrific. Uh, we lived
1: in North Hollywood in Toluca Lake, which mm-hmm. was just a tiny little kind of village then. Um, and uh, my, my, actually, my parents kept me pretty much away from the movie world. It wasn't like growing up in, in Beverly Hills. and right. But I did go up occasionally to visit my father on the set. And then he uh, went away to war In the beginning of 1943, and was away for three years. Wow. Um, We wrote by V-mail those little letters (laughs) that that, uh, you'd you'd write on a piece of paper that you get uh, official. And then they'd photograph it and just have a, a tiny thing. And it made, instead of sending volumes of long papers overseas when shipping was so important, they would send these over then blow them up and distribute them. And so my father kept all of my emails and I kept all of his letters. So I have a wonderful record of that
0: time. It must have been a tremendous change going from what was going on in the 30s into your father leaving for World War II. Yes, indeed. I got a little brown wrapped package in
1: 1944, just before D-Day. And I unwrapped it and it was William Soroyan's The Human Comedy. Oh, uh, it wow. was a story of Homer Macaulay, a little boy in California, who delivered for the Western Union, and he delivered the notices from President Roosevelt that a son, right, a brother, had died. You know, and and, and Mickey Rooney played the part, and it was this this you know painful experience of him delivering these letters, and. It, and the book was inscribed by William Soroyan, who was in my father's outfit in the war, and he, right. de- he he and he wrote about my father. And I kept it all during the war, and it was never far from my mind that that Western Union man might be coming to our house
0: with a yellow telegram. Uh, be- but happily, it never occurred. Because your dad was right out in the in the front for a lot of it, wasn't he?
1: He did, yes, he organized a combat camera unit at the direction of uh, General Eisenhower uh, that was called the Special Coverage Unit that they became known in history as the Stevens Irregulars. And it included Hollywood cameramen, two of whom, Joe Byrock and William Miller, went back to Hollywood and won Oscars. And Erwin uh, Shaw and William Soroyan, they filmed the D-Day landings and all through to the end of the war, including, importantly, uh, they were the first into the concentration camp at Dachau. And at that point, my father became less a filmmaker than a gatherer of evidence, making sure that there were
0: photographs of what they saw there for history and for the Nuremberg trials. Those those films are some of the most profound and upsetting things I've, I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it's just, I, I, growing up Jewish that we were shown those kinds of those films pretty young and, and it just was such a shattering moment for me as a kid, just to see the films. And I can't imagine the experience of your father walking into those camps for the first time.
1: Yes. Well, he, uh, he certainly said, I learned what
0: life was about when I got to Dhaka. Yeah. Do you feel that his approach to to filmmaking and really to life changed when he came back from the war? Yes, he, he it, not not
1: radically, but internally. You know, he'd made mostly comedies before the war, and he he just didn't have the the, the state of mind to do that. There was there was great humor in his films. He never lost that, but he the projects were more uh, were deeper.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know. You know, as as you know, we've already covered Giant, and we're covering Shane this week. And and in both films, you know, there is a there's kind of a big story, and then there's these subtle things going on in both films that have really really deep meaning. Um, right. and, the, and the kind of films where the more I watch them, the more I find in them. Steve, I'll tell you a, a, a little incident
1: that really speaks to my father's thinking in terms of movies. I guess I was must have been 18 and we went to the Academy Awards. Um, it was the year of a place in the sun. And it became I was sitting with dad and went that time for the best director. Um, Said John Houston, African Queen, William Wyler, The Best Years of Our Lives, Laya Kazan, Streetcar, and and Vincent Minnelli, An American in Paris. Wow, that is a tough. That's a tough year, <laughs> right? And um, my father won for A Place in the Sun. And riding home that night, he was driving the car, and it, the Oscar was on the seat between us. My mother, and his his mother, actress Georgie Cooper, were in the backseat. And I may have been a little excited, or may, he might have thought I was a little too excited. Uh, and i would never forget, he leaned over to me and he said, you know, he said, we'll have a better idea what kind of a film this is in about 25 years. Certainly it's a film that stood the test of time. Well, exactly. And you know, this was before, there, you rarely were able to see a feature film after its release. You know, there were no cinematechs. Uh, There was one little theater on La Cienega Boulevard. And there were no, obviously, DVDs or videotapes. But he had this sense of wanting to create work that lasts. He didn't want to make the film that was fashionable in its year. And, of course, they, they may be fashionable in the year, but that wasn't his end result. He wanted it to last. And your discussion on your podcast, Giant, uh, you and, and your partner spoke to that kind of as you trace that long three-hour and twenty-minute movie, of uh, you know how contemporary this is, how this relates to today. Um, so that's very much the George Stevens ethic in his movie making.
0: Um, what what I think is so interesting about those films is that. There's no easy answers given in those films. There are are a lot of difficult questions asked, I think. Um, Was there a moment where you decided, I want to be in this industry? Uh, I I
1: wanted to be a sports writer. Oh, yeah? And and Dad encouraged me. We went to all, all the football games and baseball games. But when I graduated from high school, I didn't have a job for the summer, and Dad hired me and i had two functions one was to break down theodore dreiser's great novel an american tragedy into a notebook full of every scene character all of that because he was about to embark on the screenplay right for what became a place in the sun based on dreiser's book and the other job was to read the books and scripts and stuff that came from Paramount. I think it was his way of giving me a little taste of it to see if this is something that appealed to me. And I must say, most of the books were for a 17-year-old, kind of treacly love stories. And right. one, after, one book, book came, and I read it in an afternoon, and I went over to Dad's apartment that night, and he was in bed uh, reading And I I walked in and I said, dad, I said, I read this this afternoon. It's, it's really a good, really a good story. I think you ought to read it. And he said, "Uh, why don't you tell me the story?
0: Hmm.
1: I found myself pacing around his bed, trying to tell him the story of Shane as I'd read it that afternoon. Wow. And then by a summer later, I was keenly interested and I worked on the location of Shane in a job called company clerk.
0: So so really we have you to thank for this film. If, well if if the- it, 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 yes, if we can we can exaggerate it to that extent. <laughs> well, I mean, well, this is one of the things I always think about is how much luck plays a part in what movies get made and not made. It's all about things getting seen by the right people at the right moment and seeing what, and what I'm curious about is what was it that you saw in that book that made you think this was something special that made you head to your dad's apartment?
1: Well, it, it's just a good story. Uh, the film is very, it's not, not in any way exact, but it's based on the same structure. And it's a, you know, a little boy and a family and a mysterious guy from somewhere else. And they have a problem with the cattle ranchers.
0: And, right. You know, there's some so many subtle things going on in the film, uh, mm. particularly what is Shane's background and what is he trying to do? How, what is his relationship to Marion? You know, the and I'm curious if those uh, subtleties existed in the book. You know, I would have to go back and read the book,
1: <laughs> to find which ones. But Jack Schaefer, it's a it's a very good book. Um, my father had a sense, as you point out, the subtlety of that relationship between Marion, the wife of Joe Starrett, and Shane, is so extraordinary and delicate, um, and that really is kind of my father's touch. You know, he had yeah. this insight. I mean, you've just been discussing giant, you see the subtlety of those, uh, relationships and he really knew how to tease those out. And, 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 and as you again, pointed out in your discussion with, with great subtlety,
0: there's so many great films made in this era, but I don't think anyone else is making films with the kind of subtle character things and relationships with so much ambiguity as your dad was. I, I, I mean, and, and it's not that I don't love so many, I mean, even that list of films you gave that were up for best director, those are all great movies. Yeah, but American in Paris is not subtle in that way. You know, they, they used to say in that
1: day that, um, you know, the audience, the studio heads, the audience is made up of mentality of 14 year olds. <laughs> you know, they wanted to talk down and the, greatest lesson I gained from my father in terms of my own work was to respect the audience. And when you see something that you say, this is subtle, do you think this is really what it's saying? Um, He's respecting you. He's leaving some of the work to you to bring to the film, to make it work for you as an individual.
0: So you went off to shoot it, you went to the location. What was that location
1: like? It's in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, we flew up there on a DC-3. My father and the art directors had to, to hunt locations. And he traipsed around and we drove Jeeps around. And he finally found uh, that place where to build the town with a hill on mm-hmm. the opposite where they would all enter almost like a portal riding through those trees, which, which he had planted up there and the cemetery, there was a high ground in the distance where the cemetery, because that had a relationship with the town when the right. Riker boys were sitting on the porch and the and the, the burial of Stonewall Tory is taking place. So you pick the locations and then we brought the crew up and we there, I guess, for six weeks, maybe a little more shooting all the exteriors and technical
0: art. Most people have an image of Hollywood and movie making as this glamorous and mm. romantic thing. What was it like working on this location?
1: It was hard work. I mean we'd get up we get in a that we had a black limousine, a bit of kind of a beat up old limousine, but it, you know, and a guy named Harry drove it. We get up at, you know, 530 and get in that car, you know, and be on the location at 615 and be there all day. But again, it was glamorous in a sense, you know, to ride out to that location and get out of that car. And there are all the horses. There's the, you know, the chuck wagon with the the, the metal pots of coffee and everybody out there doing their job, you know, getting ready for the day's work. And dad and screenwriter, Ivan Moffat and Fred Gill, dad's sidekick, was worked with him on many of the films. The four of us would get in the car at the end of that long day and dad would sit back and say, kick it in the ass, Harry. <laughs> Harry. We'd drive into the hotel and then we'd watch dailies.
0: Right. You know, you know, so it was it was really hard work. The images like the John Ford images of Monument Valley is so Ooh. iconic in terms of Westerns. I think the images in Shane are, are equally iconic of a different sort of location, but the, the, you know, those Tetons that are in the background of those shots is just absolutely beautiful. And, and Steve, if you look at some
1: other films, I, I saw one recently that been shot up in that part of Jackson Hole. Mm-hmm. My father you know, started out as a cameraman, Uh but he'd grown up in the theater, but parents were actors. So he had this, sense of theater and story but his first jobs were as a camera he photographed most of the great Laurel and Hardy films right the lenses used in Shane that those Tetons he he shot them with long lenses so they loomed you know right. rather than flattening out yeah he'd pair them with other film shot there and uh you know that he had that town built right in front of them and they they were overseeing the little story we were telling
0: you, you know you mentioned your your dad's theater background one of the things yeah. we talked about on the cinephiles is there's so many every director has their own approach to working with actors and i was okay. curious what his approach was did he like to do a lot of rehearsal was there improvisation was he did he like to just get right on uh, onto camera how did he how did he work with his actors no, he he worked
1: with the actors very carefully Um, You know, good rehearsal. I don't think he ever rehearsed, except for The Diary of Anne Frank, I don't think he ever rehearsed a film in advance, you know, before the shooting. But for each scene, you know, he'd come very prepared. The actors would be prepared. And, uh, you know, I remember one of the first times I went on the set of A A Place in the Sun, and I had not met Elizabeth Taylor, I had met Monty Clift. I was in college, and 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 it relates to the question you asked, because they had a new scene. It was just sort of toward the beginning of the film. And Dad would just said to them, uh, "He got got the set very quiet. He went and went to complete quiet, so they could work and concentrate. No hammering." Right. And and then he let them run the scene, and um, they did it. And he said, "Oh, right, okay." <laughs> Nice, I said, let's do it, do it again. And they went, and they did it again. And uh, they said, well, let's just do it once more here. And, uh, and they did it again. And then, after that, when Marty came up and said, George, and he said, can we talk about this? And the dad said, George, everybody's going go sit down. And Elizabeth came over. And they talked about the scene and then did it and fine-tuned it and shot it. And uh when we went to lunch i said to dad i said why did you wait for him to do it three times uh before you started to give them any direction and he, he said it it's it, it's sometimes it's good for the actor to know that uh he needs
0: a little help mm. so he so he let them sort of go out and, and flail a little bit <laughs> is that so that they would come back and then he could have the conversation with them Right. And, and, it, and it was twofold. He would also find out what they
1: might bring to it, you know, by doing it three times. Uh, uh, the actor might discover right. something else or might try something else, but that they, but they were very much in the mood for for help and discussion after that.
0: There's such a strange thing where as soon as a direct as a director, the moment you give a direction, you there's the potential that you're locking out some of the creativity from your actors, Yeah, you know, because they go, okay, I guess this is what I'm going to do. Shane has one of my absolutely favorite actors of all time. And I know John's, too. And that's uh, Gene Arthur. She's, she's just spectacular. I love her so much. All, you know, from Mr. Smith goes to Washington and she's, she has a quality that's just unlike anyone else on screen. And I, and this is her last film. So I'm curious uh, uh, if you had much interaction with her, what was her method of working? She was at that time,
1: I guess she was in her forties. And she was a gray haired little lady who cared, cared deeply about animals and mm. safety for animals. And she was always very attentive to the animals on the set and all. Um, and but dad, of course, had worked with her on uh, The More, The Merrier. Right. He loved working with her. And, and she was just enchanting. And this was so a very different kind of book. Yeah. He, he thought she could bring a quality he wanted to that
0: film. Well, there's so, there's so much of her performance that's just in... The looks, it's not in the dialogue, it's, it's just how her. she, you know, how she looks at Shane. The and you could see there's so much going on that that we never mm-hmm. express, yeah. What, and what about Alan Ladd?
1: Yeah, well, Alan Ladd, uh, you know, was not known to be a you know, he wasn't considered a great actor, but he was, you know, it had done really films that really worked and were impressive, and he he was impressive. And, uh, and, and he was just sort of the right man for this part. And, uh, they worked
0: very well together. Um, I think what he brings is that it's the same thing. His ability as an observer is Mm. that you could see the, the inner struggle because, you know, it seems to me like this is a film in a lot of ways about what his identity is, who he can, can he be, you know, a homesteader? Can he give up this thing that he was, um, um, are there scenes that were particularly challenging or difficult to film? Well, I think that fight scene in the saloon,
1: um, I've got it in my book. I think there are 136 cuts in wow. an eight-minute scene. And it's not that it's cutty, but it's just the way of telling the story. That, that number may be a, a little large, but many, many. Um, and, and having Brandon to wield there as the observer, you're really right. seeing that film through the boy's eyes. So kind of the outsized nature of it, it you, you kind of
0: accept it. Um, but it's uh, that was challenging. That, that fight scene reminded me very much of the fight scene in the diner in Giant. Each of those, there, there's a drama. You
1: guys were discussing it, the development of the fight in Giant which becomes critical to the ending of the picture. You know, there are stages to that. And you point out, one of you, that in that scene in Giant, there's a moment where, where Rock Hudson lands a tremendous yeah. blow on this huge guy with a very amplified it's a soundtrack on the hit. Right. You know, and it gives, it gives the audience the sense that he's coming back. And similarly in Shane that, you know, it's an eight minute scene right. with the story developing.
0: Well, and in both cases, the, the fight isn't there just, and this is the thing of you saying, treating the audience with respect is there are lots of movies and certainly lots of Westerns where the fights there to be exciting. And that's yeah. not why this fight is here. This, yeah. I mean, it is exciting, but yeah. why it's there is because Shane didn't chose not to fight as he's trying to be this thing that he isn't, you know, and then there's the judgment from the other homesteaders. Oh, that he might be a coward essentially. And now he's made so, and so the first part of the fight is that, and the second part of the fight is the coming together of these two men. I mean, to me, it's the emotional (laughs) high of the movie, them back to back smiling at each other in the midst of this fight and a fight scene, particularly the first half, when it's just Shane and Ben Johnson that, There, it's not like Shane comes in and just wipes the floor with him. It is, it is real close. They could go either way, you know. And and the the wonderful beginning of the
1: scene: Shane walks in, bringing back a bottle of soda pop that mm he bought in in the saloon his first time there, and Ben Johnson had ridiculed him for buying soda pop. And he puts the soda pop down and asks for two shots of whiskey. And the bartender says, you know, he's kind of scared, and and Ben Johnson's towering over him. Right. And as you're not going, you're not going to drink that in here. And Shane says, that's right. And he throws it in his face, and sets off the fight. You know. And in in terms of the story and what made it exceptional beyond what seventeen-year-old George Stevens Jr. saw in that book is my father had come back from the war and he'd seen one movie in three years and he comes back and and sees uh, these westerns and people are shooting you know clutching their stomach reloading after getting shot you know? yeah and he'd seen what a 45 did to a human and he thought this was sort of his frivolous stuff was not that good. And there's the scene with Jack Palance and Elisha Cook in the street. Yeah. Um, And Dad said about the film, he said, for us in this film, a gunshot gunshot is a holocaust. Wow. He, He wanted the audience to see what the firing of a single gunshot can mean. We see it more playfully early when he t- when he's teaching little Joey to shoot and he shoots that white rock and you t- t- find out how what a how fast he is with the gun, Shane. But this, when Palance confronts the little Southerner, Palance being the killer that's brought in by the cattlemen, you know, and Palance had learned, he'd rehearsed and you'd see him in the distance climbing on and off of his horse, drawing, <laughs> putting the glove on. He really... An actor bringing something to the scene, but you know that scene in the street where Dad we we went out there one day and didn't shoot because the street wasn't muddy enough, and that it just became again a scene that developed uh, up to the shooting with Elisha Cook had been they put a uh, people used to get shot and fall forward they put a harness on him under his shirt. And they had three uh, stagehands, uh, teamsters, at the other end of it. With you know, and when Pallant shot him, they ripped him back into that mud with a mattress underneath the mud. Uh,
0: that really made the gunshot a holocaust. Well, and the other the other thing too is the fact that um, that Elijah draws and knows that he's too slow. And then balance oh. doesn't shoot him at first yeah. and then shoots him in the moment, gives that extra moment. It's that extra moment that makes it so terrible. It turns it from a competition to a murder, you know? Very well said. You know, you said that that Hollywood at the time treated the audience like they're a bunch of 14 year olds. Yeah. Um. I think I was probably about 14 when I first saw, saw Shane and, I don't think I, I didn't appreciate it. All the things that you're talking, I think because I wanted, oh, a cool Western with gunfights and things like that. And so all the things that make this film great were the things that I wasn't picking up on at the time. Yeah. Um, and that, and that's what, again, one of the signs of a great film is you come back to it at a different time in your life and you see new things, you know, and that's certainly true of Shane. It's interesting. Uh, the
1: head of the, the, the Riker gang, Ruth Riker. Um, You know, with the beard. Yeah. All kind of a wonderful character. But, you know, he talks about he comes out and and he's a reasonable man. He says, you know, we we he he makes his case. No, he's not a cut out villain. Right. You you really understand his side of the case. And dad always uh, had, had a sense of making these characters not cliches, but, you, you know, having some
0: depth. In general, I don't like bad guys. I like characters that are antagonists that have a motivation who might right. do bad things, yeah. but, but purely, you know, mustache twirling, bad guys are not my thing. I'm very curious. What are the origins of the American Film Institute? How did that all come about? I've written
1: a book, which you're going to find out a lot of that. That's coming out in the spring. It's called my place in the sun, the, my life in the golden age of Hollywood and Washington. And I had started my work in Hollywood and uh, had had been directing uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Peter Gunn, I started when I was 25 directing, and then worked with my father as his associate producer on the diary of Anne Frank, and was about to work with him on the greatest story ever told when Edward R. Murrow, the great CBS broadcaster um, who'd uh, uh, left CBS at the invitation of President Kennedy to go to Washington and run the United States Information Agency, the agency that tells America's story abroad. And he asked me to come back at age 29 and run the motion picture division of USIA. So I went to Washington and became part of the Kennedy years, and um, and during that, the National Endowment for the Arts was created, and they knew what to do with theater, dance, music, um, but they didn't know what to do about film, and I proposed an American Film Institute, and uh, that, and that idea took hold, and then I was asked to run it and start it, and did so in
0: 1967. What what was the initial proposal? What was it that you? What was the mission statement for the American Film Institute? Um, To
1: uh, preserve the great films of the past, to train and give opportunity to the new filmmakers of the future were the primary objectives. And uh, in time, we there are now forty thousand films that were rescued. Wow. Feature Films in the American Film Institute Collection at the Library of Congress in Washington. And that was an enormous enterprise uh, because the studios weren't interested in preserving films. And they were deteriorating and they were made on nitrate so they could melt down or catch on fire. Um, and we gave grants to independent filmmakers and then started the what we now call the AFI Conservatory, uh, and in in its first years, uh, there was Terrence Malick and David Lynch and Paul Schrader. Um, it was the beginning of a an advanced level of training that uh, of which there was nothing common to that in the United States.
0: I'm curious um, at AFI. I mean, at the time that you were running. Uh, the American Film Institute, was a time of just radical change in the film industry. And I wonder how that was reflected at the Institute. Well, um, I think
1: Terrence Malick and David Lynch and Paul Schrader, they were in the first class. Um, You know, I think we selected people to come to AFI. Not that we looked at the films they made if they had. Terry had only made Terrence Malick, uh, uh, a little 15-minute film. But we care more about who they were and what they knew. Terry was teaching existential philosophy at MIT. He'd been a correspondent in Latin America. Um, You know, he had
0: ideas and he was interested in the world. I love the combination of bringing the past and the future together. I think right. that's you know there there's so many people today that have so little reference, reverence for the classic films because we're surrounded by so much media all the time I think right. and that the fact that you have these young filmmakers coming in and simultaneously you have you know the great masterworks coming through too. Is there a particular film that you saved that you think that you're particularly proud of?
1: There are just so many, you know, right. that, uh, uh, in so many of the great films. They, um, right now, I, I would even forget which ones to, to sing, single out. But this, you know, I told the story of my father after the Oscars, and uh, we'll know what, have a better idea of what kind of a film this is in 25 years. Somehow, my father had triggered in me an appreciation of that element, the importance of the test of time. And it was nourished by my experiences working for President Kennedy uh, when he was calling for a national endowment for the arts and saying that uh, uh, I look forward to an America that won't be afraid of grace and beauty, that will reward achievement in the arts the way we reward achievement in business or statecraft. Which is fi- the opening line of the kennedy Center honors
0: um i have I have a lot of questions about the kennedy Center honors but do do, do you think that we're doing a good job of that today of elevating the arts uh, we should be doing better we should be doing better yep yeah, there, there
1: are so many fine films being made today and and a much needed diversity is coming behind the camera but the 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 principal investment in films is for uh, Marvel the blockbusters the franchises uh, and you know those films, the big investment in films in the day when I was coming into the industry, you know David Lean for Lawrence of Arabia, my father for Giant Fred Zinneman for A Man for All Seasons uh, I don't know what those men would be doing today. Yeah, uh, and, and, and as I don't think they were. Though their films weren't. John Hunt was an enormously successful film. It was David Lean who said, uh, "I don't, I don't like to jump out of the same hole twice." Right. And my father was very much of that nature. He, he made all different kinds of film, but they were marked by a humanity, and some of the kind of stuff that you've been discussing. There are true of his films before the war, even the comedies, uh, the talk of the town, film with suspense, comedy, drama, and social content. Uh, I think that the financing of films could be better organized, so the, the best filmmakers could be having the resources to make films of
0: somewhat greater purpose. Yeah, because those films like Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai, and those don't exist. No, no one's making, or very rarely, are people making those kinds of films. It's funny, you said that, you know, the studio's idea of the audience was just a bunch of 14-year-olds. It seems to me that's even more true today. But, but, but it is. In many ways, it is. And and it, you,
1: said you could add just... In the David Lean spirit, Christopher Nolan making Denmark. Sure. I mean, Denmark, Dunkirk.
0: Uh, (laughs) Denmark would be a very different
1: movie. (laughs) Denmark is different. But, but, um,
0: you know, so there's the capacity to make these films. I think the Kennedy Center Honors is one of the great annual shows of all time. It's, It's not exactly an award show, but it is more joyful and more moving uh, to me than any of those other shows. And I'm curious, how did it come into existence? It was the 10th year of the American Film Institute. We had done a
1: special at the Kennedy Center, CBS broadcast, the AFI 10th anniversary, where we selected the greatest films of all time, a precursor to the 100 hundred. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did it in the Kennedy Center Opera House, President Carter had a reception beforehand and I had in mind, because our offices were in the Kennedy Center and I had been on the committee that planned the Kennedy Center, I had this idea that we should have something that command performance in London is kind of nothing like it, but the idea of a national celebration of the arts. And Roger Stevens, no relation, the chairman of the Kennedy Center, agreed and I took it to CBS and we sold it as a television special and uh, just went to work on it. And, uh, and the idea is that quote that I recited a while back of Kennedy, President Kennedy's appreciation of the arts. And uh, we did it for people who had a lifetime achievement and enriched, and enriched American culture through the performing arts. And uh, a friend of mine, Nick Banoff, and I produced the honor show in the early years, and I wrote them with others. Uh, And from the very beginning, they were tremendously uh, successful, and we really sought to have them tasteful and elegant and
0: entertaining. Um, I'm curious, are there certain rules of, like, how, what how you approach each of those those shows because they're so unique and the th- the thing that i love about them is that a the aspect of celebration but b watching the artist be honored mm. i think it's just so always so moving and i'm curious if there were sort of we will do this we won't do that as you as you were setting it up
1: yeah i mean i think it was more an ethic or a taste that we we wanted it to be popular and entertaining, but we didn't want to pander to the audience. You know, we were prepared to put classical artists on and, 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 and have people speak with, with wit and intelligence rather than gags written right. by gag writers. Yeah. The writers I collaborated with were Bob Shrum, who was uh, Ted Kennedy's speechwriter, uh, Don Bear, who was Bill Clinton's speechwriter. Wow. I, mean, I, I was looking for, you know, kind of a, a world awareness and a humanity, and they, they helped bring that to them. We also what? did biographical films, which in four or five minutes uh, let the audience understand who these individuals were, so that the entertainment we chose to honor them had more meaning and
0: was touching and moving because you knew what it meant to them well and for some of those people they were obviously huge stars that we all knew but some of the other people were you know whether it's from the dance world or the music world might be might be people that uh not everyone was as familiar with so i think those films were key are there are there particular moments in the kennedy center honors that stick out to you as the as as some of your favorites No,
1: Jesse Norman singing "Amazing Grace," Sydney Poitier's mother's favorite song to him. Mm. You know, and and just the internet, the interaction of the two. You know, but when we honored the Nicholas Brothers, nobody had heard of the Nicholas Brothers, and it was themed with Gregory Hines and all the great tap dancers, and they were just so brilliant, so happy to be recognized. And the audience to see their dancing. Yeah. i never seen it, you know, maybe in passing. So to be able to give recognition
0: to two wonderful people like that was uh, very pleasing. Uh, yeah. And people that didn't get the recognition that they really deserved. And one of the great things about the world we have now, there's all sorts of reasons not to like some of these companies, but the fact that you can go on YouTube right now and watch the Nicholas brothers, particularly like there's the Cab Calloway performance. That's yeah. just, they're, they're just, but they're, I love them. They're some of my favorites. Um, uh, what was it? You did the, the play Thurgood you wrote. And I'm curious, what, what was what was it about Thurgood Marshall that draw made you want to write that play? Um, I had previously written and directed a
1: miniseries called Separate But Equal, which was a story of Brown versus the Board of Education, um, which ended the court case, ended school segregation or made it outlawed it it did not immediately end it and um thurgood was the architect of that whole process uh all the way to the supreme court and Sidney poitier played thurgood marshall and the miniseries won the emmy um burt lancaster played john w davis the other attorney and lots of fine actors and it it was a great success and i'd done all this research for it And one night i was having dinner on Melrose Boulevard, a restaurant with Sidney Poitier and his wife and my wife, and Sydney, uh, we sat down and I said, well, you know, kind of what, what, what are you, what's up? And he said, it's been 40 years since Raisin in the Sun. I want to go back to Broadway. Oh wow! And I don't know where it came from. I'd never written a play. I said, how about I write a play about Thurgood Marshall? And his eyes lit up and he thought that was great. So I wrote it. And Sydney would come to my apartment in Los Angeles and we would read through it and all. Long story short, Sydney had me up for lunch one day and he said, trying to learn the play, he said, I can't learn it. If you want to do a film of it, we could do that. And I said, well, we've really done the film. So it was a great disappointment. And we ended up doing it with Lawrence Fishburne, who was superb, and and younger, he was able to play the young Thurgood. And uh, but it, it was I had always been interested in civil rights, and this was a, a wonderful way to tell that. To and Marshall had tremendous humor. he yeah. was a great storyteller. So there was a, there was great material to make it a very entertaining, respecting the audience kind
0: of evening um i yeah i i I think his life is just so fascinating i'm so glad that you got to create two projects that that highlight who who this great man was um you mentioned before uh your your book uh my place in the sun a life in the golden age of hollywood in washington uh can you tell us a little bit about the book yes well it's something it's
1: it really uh describes my life and my uh my family's life, My I, uh, three of my grandparents were actors. My great-grandmother, Georgia Woodthorpe, uh, was, was a great star in San Francisco in the theater, and she was the youngest Ophelia to Edwin Booth's Hamlet. Wow. And very nicely, Bill Haber, the producer of Thurgood, when we did it in 2008, got the Booth Theater named after Edwin Booth, for third book. Wow. Life has its symmetries, and this book is a lot about those symmetries. Uh, growing up, my career in the movies, my life in Washington, uh, founding the American Film Institute, uh, um, it, it's, it's rich with um, both film and,
0: and current history. Um, it sounds like exactly the kind of book I want to read. When, when's it coming out? Coming out in uh, April. In April. Um, well, we will definitely uh, circle, maybe circle back to it when it comes out and I get a chance to read it because it's, uh, I'm so, I love all this kind of history. And in particular, the, you know, I don't know that anyone else has as many ties to both Hollywood and Washington as you do. That brings a really unique perspective. It does. I was, when,
1: when going to Washington at that young age and working with Edward R. Murrow, who was one of the great figures of our time, and President Kennedy and so many others, um, and having such extraordinary experiences, that I was really uh, among the very first of the bi-coastal people, you know, living in Washington and uh, back and forth, you know, when the Film Institute started, we were both in Washington and Los Angeles, so it it provided me with
0: a very uh, and you know very rich life experience. Um, it occurred to me, you know, you're talking about Edward R. Murrow and the and this period, this hopeful moment with Kennedy, and this idea of both uh, the importance of the arts and with Edward R. Murrow the importance of the truth and of journalism. And it seems to me that we're at a really precarious moment in history right now in terms of how people feel about the institutions that run us and about the media and journalism. And I'm wondering, you know, what you see has changed and and if you see a pathway to kind of set things right. I I think it's a very perilous time
1: for the reasons you describe. The idea that a way of becoming popular is by not, not obeying the law. Yeah, that, it's, that we have serial people now in public life who are willing to defy a subpoena, uh, not respect the third branch of government. And it's going to take some very strong leadership in different places and for citizens to have their eyes open uh, and and be able to tell the difference between total falsehood Like the lie that the election was not solid, and you know, there's there's no support, and there's no truth that that too many people believe it. So yes, there's going to be uh, there's a lot
0: of work ahead for smart and well-meaning people. I feel like we're so desperate to have someone like Edward R. Murrow Mm. that people could feel that they could trust and go Mm. and accept what the truth is. You know Mm. that there is in fact a truth and that we can know what it is because right now that even the idea of truth has been degraded so far. That is true. That is true. So we will
1: put on our spurs and uh, work (laughs) hard and be hopeful. A new book just came out recently um, called George Stevens, The Films of a Hollywood Giant by Neil Sinyard, a very interesting British historian, because, you know, I think that, uh, you know, there's a fuller understanding to be had of, of George Stevens, you know, compared to, you know, say Capra, who was a friend of mine and a colleague of his. I mean, Dad, dad has a much more, tremendous more rangy career. And, you know, he, he, they're hardly a bad film among all the ones he made. That You know, they hold up today. Yeah. Uh, we were mentioning... A, a, the talk of the town which ends with a mob outside the supreme court a friend wrote to me the other day that he'd just seen it and it speaks to today you know right uh, you know and that swing time is arguably the best prominently thought to be the best of the astaire rogers films i mean he had tremendous range but part of the reason that swing time is is there's a humanity and a delicacy in the performances of Starr and rogers that is deeper you know than the others the other are you know
0: they're lighter they're yeah, yeah lighter exactly anyway and maybe we could it sounds right up my alley. It's, it's funny. Uh, and I won't put this in, but it, it just occurred to me as you were talking about the American Film Institute. I was like, oh, that's kind of what we're trying to do on the cinephiles in a weird way is to create a, you know, a record like a, a deep, deep analysis of these great films. You know, that's um, so so that ho- hopefully by the time I don't know how long we're going to do this show, that but we'll have hundreds and hundreds of films that we've really broken down in a detailed way. Just you know, that's it's important. You know, I was
1: w- in listening to your giant uh, thing you, you, that that's uh, not not much of that goes on that kind of really deep and, and kind of in, you know, talking about it in a light way, you know, not, you know, a burdensome
0: long 24 uh, page essay. Um, so good work. Keep it up. Thank you. That's great. George, this has been an absolute honor having you on the show. It has been incredible. Um, hearing, hearing your stories is just exactly what The Cinephiles is all about. So thank you so much for coming on.
1: Okay, it was a great pleasure, and, and maybe I'll see you again someday. Uh,
0: I would look forward to it.